Welcome to the Lab Life Podcast, a candid insight into the life of an undergraduate researcher. I'm your host, Richard Sung. I'm an aspiring research scientist and undergraduate student at Vanderbilt University studying computer science, applied math, and neuroscience. In this series, I invite you along my weekly research journey and share lessons I've learned in the lab. You're listening to season one, episode 10, the season finale. In part one, we talk about the seven traits of highly successful undergraduate researchers. In part two, I present my full results from my research at Boystown, and I summarize my primary takeaways from the program. So without further ado, let's discuss. So to end off this season, I wanted to pilot something very similar to the book, Seven Traits of Highly Successful People by Stephen Covey, by introducing my seven traits of successful undergraduate researchers. Now, a point of disclaimer, I recognize that Myself, I'm a very flawed person and I don't necessarily follow all of these seven traits. But what I will say is that I believe these traits are very important for research and are things that I've seen from other people that have made them excel in the research project. So without further ado, let's begin. Trait number one is curiosity. At the end of the day, this is what research is. Research is discovering new things, new things that have been undiscovered, unexplored, by other people in the past. It's making new contribution to science, humanities, or whatever you're researching in. With this in mind, it's so important to have curiosity, a constant desire to learn, to read papers, to learn new skills, and a constant drive to interpret results. Without curiosity, research does not exist in the first place. Trait number two is humility. Humility is recognizing that you have so much to improve on. It's recognizing that there are so many mentors out there that can help you in your research project. Humility is working harder to improve yourself because you realize that you have many flaws and you have many areas that you can better in. But humility is also important for making friends in the field. At the end of the day, people don't want to work with someone that's arrogant, who thinks that they're better than everyone else. People would rather work with someone who's humble, who is willing to learn from others. And as a result, if you're humble and if you have humility, you're much more likely to make a lot of friends in the research sphere and people will want to work with you. The third trait is organization. Organization is important because you need to keep your files organized, your experiments organized, even your thoughts organized. Knowing where things are will help you so much when you're working with other people. As a result, when they have to pick up your project, or when they have to pick off where you left off, they'll know exactly where things are and the workflow will be that much smoother. But organization also entails what your schedule is supposed to look like. Do you know when you expect to have results? Do you know when your poster presentation is or when your conference is? And as a result, do you know when you need your results by? Do you need to, do you know when you need to submit your manuscript by, et cetera? Organization is very important for keeping all of your thoughts, all your files, all your schedule organized so that your research workflow is as smooth as possible. The fourth trait is keeping an open mind. And this means a couple of things. First, it means the flexibility to pivot when things go wrong. You're not dead set on one way of thinking, rather you're open to multiple lines of experimentation just in case one fails. But keeping an open mind also means that you're open to accept other ideas and also criticism from other people. This is really important. I find that a lot of times in the research sphere, you're going to receive a lot of criticism. And that's because 
other people have just done things differently than you. And they may have a better way of doing things. And it's important that you keep an open mind and listen to what they have to say, even if it comes off as harsh. Because at the end of the day, there may be a hidden message behind that criticism. And if you keep an open mind, perhaps pursuing that hidden message will help you in the long run. The fifth trait is positivity. And this goes very similarly with open mind. But positivity is the ability to bounce back from failure. In research, most of your experiments will probably fail. And it's important you can keep positive. You can fixate on the longer goal. You can realize that other researchers have also faced failure, have also had experiments not work, but they have bounced back as well. And if you hold a positive mindset, they'll only help you in the long term as well. But moreover, research is a very long journey. If you're constantly fixated on the short term and the short term failures and the short term hurdles, you cloud yourself from the idea that research may take five to six years or even longer. And with that in mind, it's important to keep a positive mindset in order to really focus on the long term goal, to focus on what you are really working toward, whether that's a PhD or a paper or something even greater. Keep a positive mindset. Number six is communication. This is very important for many reasons. Number one, when you're working with research mentors, it's important to communicate with them what you have been up to. I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but communication is one of the best ways to maintain a positive professional relationship with your research mentors. If you can communicate exactly what you've been working on or what you've been struggling with, it makes it so much easier for your research mentors to give you the help that you need. But communication is also important because it means the ability to express your own ideas clearly in manuscripts and presentations. Many of the graduate students that I've talked to, both at Boystown and Vanderbilt, have stated that one of the most important traits that graduate school admissions are looking for are undergraduates who can communicate their ideas clearly. At the end of the day, most successful research will be published. And it's important that you can communicate yourself, both in writing for publications, but as well as orally for presentations and conferences, so that other researchers can absorb your ideas. And you can make a positive impact on the world with your words and your research. And the seven trait of highly successful undergraduate researchers is ambition. You need to have a drive, a spark, a goal to publish, to attend conferences, to network, to get the best results. At the end of the day, the spark that you have is going to be indicative of the progress that you make. Researchers who are ambitious will want to be the best version of themselves. And this goes in line with all of the other traits that I've mentioned above. Researchers who are ambitious will realize that they are not the best that they may not be the most organized, that they may not be the most positive or the best at communicating, but will work hard to try to better themselves and to achieve all of their goals. This is part two of the Lab Life podcast where I discuss my weekly research findings from the Boystown National Hospital Institute for Human Neuroscience. 
Now, in actuality, I'm recording this podcast from home because I have just finished my full 10 weeks at the program. And as I promised from last episode, I wanted to take some time in this episode to discuss my full project and the full findings that I found. So here are the exact findings that I found just like I presented them at my poster presentation. So to begin, my project looks specifically at how anodal parietal transcranial direct current stimulation impacted verbal working memory neural circuitry. Little bit of background. First, verbal working memory concerns the short-term encoding, maintenance, and retrieval of letter-based stimuli. And transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS, is a non-invasive brain stimulation technique that alters neural thresholds to make neurons fire easier without actually inducing any action potentials. So my project was specifically looking at when you stimulate the parietal lobe, the TDCS, over the left parietal lobe, right parietal lobe, and with the sham or a placebo, how does that affect the way that the brain undergoes verbal working memory? So our specific task used 39 healthy participants, but one of them was ultimately excluded for low accuracy. To assess verbal working memory, uh, all, all of the participants underwent three single-blinded trials, one where they were stimulated on the left parietal lobe, one on the right parietal lobe, and one sham. Then they were sat in the MEG, and they performed the Sternberg working memory task to assess their verbal working memory while the MEG was reading their neural oscillatory dynamics. So the Sternberg working memory task is fairly simple. First, the participants will look at a blank fixation cross. Then six letters will appear on the screen. They'll all disappear then for three seconds. And finally, one letter will appear on the screen. And the participant has to answer whether that one letter was part of the original six. So that's the overall task. Now, what did we find? Well, first, we found a couple of very canonical responses that are associated with verbal working memory. So of course, there is a strong left hemispheric alpha desynchronization throughout most of the encoding, throughout all of the encoding phase and throughout the maintenance phase. And the strong left alpha desynchronization is representative of something called the phonological loop. And the phonological loop is basically our brain repeating information over and over again in like our inner ear to really memorize it. So basically when the participants are looking at those six letters on the screen, they're subconsciously rehearsing those six letters. And that subconscious rehearsal of those letters is the phonological loop, which is very left-oriented, left-hemispheric dominant, and is represented by that alpha desynchronization. There was also a theta-evoked response. And what this represents is that the visual cortex is suddenly hit with visual stimuli. And when it reacts suddenly, that is that data evoked response. And finally, there's a little bit of an alpha synchronization in the maintenance phase in the back of the occipital cortex. And this wasn't super important for our project, but basically this response represents our visual, our visual cortex tuning out all other information so that it can really focus on the task at hand. Now onto some of our key findings. So first, we conducted some whole brain statistics via ANOVA tests 
to compare group-wise differences in the activation between when you stimulated left, when you stimulated right parietal, and sham. And we found two primary findings. So the first primary finding concerned the difference between stimulating left and stimulating right. And specifically, when we stimulated left, we saw mostly a difference in activation in only the left hemisphere, which makes sense. But when we stimulated the right side, what we saw is a difference in activation in both the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. So this was finding number one. When you stimulate left, it affects the left hemisphere. When you stimulate right, it affects the left and the right hemisphere. Finding number two is that whenever we stimulated, the left hemisphere seemed to be more active relative to sham. And whenever we stimulated, the right hemisphere seemed to be less active relative to sham. So the left hemisphere, more active. Right hemisphere, less active. And this almost implies a push-pull relationship between the left and the right hemisphere, such that the left hemisphere is the driver. It's the dominant force behind verbal working memory. However, it recruits the right hemisphere for help, such that when the right hemisphere is impaired or when the right hemisphere is less activated, the left hemisphere has to become more activated in order to compensate for the loss of the right hemisphere. So again, an analogy that you can kind of think of this is a driver of a car and the passenger or, and the person sitting shotgun who is like the director of uh, who's controlling like the map to tell the driver where to go. If the person sitting in the shotgun seat, the right side, is focusing less, then the person who's driving the left side has to almost focus more in order to compensate for the loss of focus in the right side. So a very similar thing is happening here. The left is the driver who, is, who recruits the right for help, such that when the right is less active, the left has to become more active. So the overall interpretation from these whole brain results is that the left, when you stimulate left, it directly affects the left hemisphere. But when you stimulate right, it indirectly affects the left hemisphere via this push-pull relationship that first involves disrupting the right hemisphere. Now, the next question that we have to answer is, is this push-pull relationship that's occurring, is it a good thing? And to do that, we found a few behavioral correlations that were key to answering this question. And what we found is that in the right hemisphere, less activation worsens performance, but in the left hemisphere, more activation worsens performance. And remember, in the left hemisphere, we saw more activation, and in the right hemisphere, we saw left less activation. So both of these results seem to imply that stimulation worsens performance overall, because it's causing the brain circuitry to almost act more inefficiently. And then finally, to tie together all the results, we performed something called functional connectivity, which basically explains how the brain's networks responded to stimulation, starting from the parietal cortex. And this is really important because, again, the brain is not compartmentalized. Different regions don't act independently. They're all connected in one way, shape, or form, and the connections really determine how the brain as an overall structure functions. 
So we decided to look at how the connections between different areas in the brain were disrupted, primarily connections stemming from the parietal cortex. And what we found is that when we stimulated right, the theta connections in the right hemisphere were disrupted, starting from the parietal cortex. And a couple of observations need to be made here in order to really see what's going on. So number one is that theta is really important for top-down executive control. It's important for the brain telling other regions basically what to do. That's top-down executive control. And number two is that the parietal cortex is very important for integrating sensory information altogether to make a cohesive understanding of the world. It ties together our visual information, our auditory information, our touch feelings. It ties that all together to really allow us to understand what's happening around the world. So taking these two observations together, the less theta connection findings in the right hemisphere after right stimulation implies that top-down executive control areas are receiving less sensory feedback because the connection to the parietal lobe is weakened. And as a result, these top-down executive control areas become more inefficient at telling left areas what to do, which means that left areas have to work harder in order to compensate for the loss of functioning in top-down executive control areas. Again, is similar with the results that we found prior. And another finding that we found is that alpha connections in the right side, beginning from the parietal cortex, alpha connections are strengthened when you simulate left. And this almost explains why there are no right hemispheric differences when we stimulate left, specifically in activation. And that's because the strengthening and connection in the right hemisphere when we stimulate left is kind of compensating for any sort of loss in activation that we may have initially seen in the right side when we stimulate left. And thus in later stages, such as the maintenance phase, when we stimulate left, there are no differences in activation in the right side. And that's because connection was strengthened in order to compensate. So those were all of our main findings. Now the really interesting thing from this entire project that I helped find was really this involvement in the right hemisphere with verbal working memory. That's the novel finding. And the reason it's novel is because originally when we thought of verbal working memory, we always assumed that it was left dominant. It was left driven. But from this project, we found that when you disrupt the right side, the left side is also disrupted. And that implies that the right side is monumental in helping the left side function as optimally and as efficiently as possible. Now, I wanted to talk about some of my key takeaways from participating in this program. Number one is that working full-time with neuroscience research has made me really appreciate the field of neuroscience. Because in reality, neuroscience is a field that is in its nascence. One of the biggest challenges surrounding science is answering the question of how does the brain work? Because the brain is such a complex organ. It has so many connections. It is responsible for so many things. And it seems to be this jumbo of, of disorganized parts, of neurons that we really don't understand the connection between. 
but it's so vital for all of human life. Such that answering this question of how does the brain work will become one of the biggest challenges of science in this next century. And because neuroscience is a field that is in its nascence, we know so little about the brain. There are so many cool findings to be taken away from neuroscience. Just a small finding, a, sim- a, a, a simply trivial experiment on its face value, right? Like determining whether people can memorize six letters. This simple task, this simple experiment, was able to yield this really interesting finding. And this really made me appreciate the value of neuroscience research. The second takeaway that I got from this program was the amount of insight that I gained from other MD PhDs and PhDs in our lab, as well as, of course, the PIs, was very valuable to me. They showed me what it was like to publish a paper, to prepare for a conference. I was able to sit in on a thesis defense. I was able to see what the grant writing process was like. I was able to shadow acquisition of both MEG data as well as MRI data. And all of these basically are things that I wouldn't have been able to get elsewhere. And, but th- these things are such, they're the, they're the behind the scenes of what graduate students have to do. And I think it's so important to really see all of the behind the scenes because at the end of the day, my future career in research will have to involve all of this. And it's the part that I don't really see from just YouTube or in my regular um, research project jobs. So these behind the scenes, these key insights that I got were incredibly valuable. Next, I wanted to take some time to thank all the friends that I've made through this program. And you guys know who you are. My friends, they supported me and this podcast and made my whole research experience at Boys Town that much more enjoyable. You know, throughout most of my time working at Boys Town, I was really sitting alone at my desk, just grinding, trying to find the best results, doing research. And I feel like if I was just sitting on my desk all the time without any interaction, I might have gone crazy. I really needed people to talk to, to to uplift me when times were tough. And I'm so fortunate that I met people at Boys Town that helped me do that. So I wanted to thank my friends so much for all of their help. I could not have done this without you guys. And finally, I'm incredibly hopeful for the future of my research career. I'm really looking forward to further research at both Vanderbilt and Tokyo, as well as working with the people that I've met at Boys Town and learning more about how the brain learns, as well as how different factors may impair how the brain learns. I think this is such a cool and unique research direction, and it has so many implications for medicine, for neuroscience, etc. And I'm so excited to see all the different directions that I can take from here. Thank you for listening to the Lab Life Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, or whichever platform you're tuning in from. So long for now, and I'll see you in season two.